All right. Well, good morning. So, <clears throat> thank you, Ivan and the rest of the musicians. Thank you, Pastor Russ. This is a really awesome time uh, together taking communion. Uh, it is so much more, isn't it? The uh, <clears throat> before we before we you know get into God's Word together this morning, I do want to uh, just make a brief announcement. You might have noticed if you're sitting in this room that your nose is running. Um, that your nose is, yeah, you feel it. It's, it's cold. Um, your fingers are, are numb. Um, and uh, I want to assure you with some really positive or, or reassure you with some really exciting news. We have a new furnace coming um, this week. So you can, yeah, praise God, right? Yeah, so let's, all right, I'll praise God. You just sit there. I just want you to know I'm going to be up here moving. I'm going to be warm. You should be praising God that next week you'll have a heater in here. So um, I was thinking about it this morning. I think that's just like, actually, I think Ivan and, and the worship team requested that uh, we turn off the heater. Um, it gets you moving more, and it's like, yeah, so I think that may have been part of it. So, no. Uh, praise God. We'll have, a, we'll have a new heater here uh, running next week, and um, they probably have overcompensated. It'll be like 90 in here next week, so... Um, you know, before we begin, uh, just think about the words that song when we were singing earlier, the, the idea of, you know, from the mountains shouted out, you know, go on and tell it to the masses that he is God. Um, that's our privilege and it's our command. You know, it's not like this, like maybe if you want to get involved as a Christian, you can tell it to the masses like, no, this is a command from God. And, and it's something that we should be excited about because the reality is God is the only hope for humans. Amen? He's our only hope. And I say that because uh, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that too many people are putting their hope in elections. Too many people are putting their hope in who sits in a White House. All right? And I think it's important, and I hope you all go out and vote on Tuesday. I think that's very important that we, that we exercise our right to vote. But just before we begin, I want to pray. Because I think it's really important that we recognize that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Amen? And, uh, and, and we can put our hope confidently in Him. And it's a hope that we've been given the privilege to shout out to the masses. And I'm afraid sometimes that the way we live our lives is communicating that there's no hope. We're panicking. Stop panicking. God is on the throne. Amen? So let's pray, and then we're going to open God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come here right now to gather together and shout out to each other that you are worthy of praise. We get the opportunity to come and encourage each other with the truth that our hope is firmly fixed in you. And God, I pray that we will take that message out the doors today into our communities. That our hope would be firmly anchored in you. God, we pray for your sovereign will to be accomplished in this country and around the globe. We thank you for what we just celebrated a moment ago, that your son Jesus is going to return. That is fact. And it's a hope that we can be firmly anchored to. And so, God, we pray that your church, that our mission and our focus won't change between Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. That as we, as we vote and, we, and, we, and we, we choose a president for the country that we live in, God, I pray that our, our, our hearts will be firmly anchored in you, our sovereign king. And help us to live with the joy that is ours in our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts this morning, God. We want to look at your word. We want to take some time to look at the words that you communicated through your prophet, Haggai. And I pray that these words would, would actually change us the way it changed those people when they heard it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, super excited uh, this morning to be... Uh, up here sharing with you from God's Word. I uh, just love His Word, and I love the opportunity to share with you the things that God's showing me 
in his word. And uh, I've been studying in the, the Minor Prophets recently, and, and this book really jumped out at me. And as soon as Russ asked me, actually before he asked me if I would teach today, I, I already knew that this was the next message that God would have me to share here. And so really excited for this opportunity. How many of you have ever started something, started something that you failed to finish? <laughs> Everybody laughs. Like everybody, right? We've all done this. You know, whether it's a home improvement project or your New Year's resolution to lose weight, uh, get in shape, yeah, next year, right? Maybe you plan to read through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And, and you start with great gusto, right? I mean, we've got great intentions. It's Genesis, yes, Exodus, awesome, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. <laughs> we've already read this before, right? Deuteronomy. And, and, and you get to the end, you're like, I'm, I'm done, right? And you don't intend to lose, uh, lose steam. You don't intend to stop. But what you began with great zeal and determination, for a variety of reasons, we slowly lose interest in or we become discouraged with, right? And we quit. When I first became a Christian, I remember how passionate I was about sharing my faith. Some of you probably have similar stories. I wanted others to experience the joy and the peace that I had come to know. And so I was eager to share it. I mean, I was, I was really, I mean, pretty obnoxious, really. Uh, when I first got saved, I, was, I had a lot of zeal and not a lot of knowledge. All right? But, but people knew that I was excited about my new relationship with Jesus. I worked at a gas station, and, and I would sing praise songs as I was washing windows uh, at a gas station in Manchester. And, and just, I, I was so excited. I was only 16 years old, but even then I knew that the Lord was calling me into full-time vocational ministry. I, I knew it at 16, and so I started pursuing that in different ways. But over time, something happened. Slowly, I became discouraged by what I interpreted as unsuccessful attempts to share my faith. People just weren't interested. Some of them even hostile. I also became distracted. I became distracted by my own selfish pursuits, which led me uh, definitely into sinful territory. And instead of pursuing holiness, I filled my life with things that I thought would make me happy. And over time, I found myself less and less concerned with building God's kingdom and way more concerned with building my own. And I drifted for quite a while. I stopped pursuing the calling that God had placed on my life. You know, the sad thing is that that's not just something that happens to individual Christians, is it? The truth is that entire gatherings of believers, entire Christian ministries that began with great intentions, for some reason, they drift off track and off mission. And for a variety of reasons, they or we drift off course. Today, we're going to begin what is going to be a two-week message series through an amazing little book in the Old Testament called Haggai. Actually, there's some debate about that. Is it Haggai or Haggai? I'm going with Haggai because I like it better. And I'm probably wrong, but that's what we're going with, Haggai. In this book, God confronts his people. He confronts his people for being off mission. They were off track. And through a series of messages that he delivers through the prophet Haggai, God helps them to see where they have drifted. And he calls them to a renewed commitment to his plan for their lives. This is, uh, this is an incredible uh, little book. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Haggai. Um, Haggai is, uh, you know, one of 12 books in the Old Testament that we refer to as the, the minor prophets. Uh, they're the last 12 books in the Old Testament section of your Bible. And they come right after a section of five uh, books, which we refer to as the major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but I think it's always worth repeating, because when I say major and minor, we might get the wrong idea, that, that the major prophets, those are the ones that are really important, right? 
the message that God had through Isaiah is really important. The message that he had through Haggai is it's minorly important, right? No, right? That has nothing to do with it. The, uh, the major and minor prophets, are, they weren't originally called that, right? Um, that's just what we call them to help uh, you know, organize them. And really, it's, it's all about the length. The, the major prophets are really long, and the minor prophets are, are really short. What's really funny is that people spend more time in the major prophets, which are really long, and less time in the minor prophets, which are really short. And at least when I was a kid, I was always looking for the short books, you know? <laughs> so, hey, if you're like me, uh, just hang out in the minor prophets. They're awesome. Um, so those are the major and minor prophets. By the way, this is not an easy book to find. Uh, how many people are still looking? Some like, like, I know it's in here somewhere. Well, I, I gave you a cheat sheet on the, up on there. But a quick way to find, uh, to find Haggai is it's near the end of the Old Testament, right between the two Z books at the end of the Old Testament, because Z is at the end of the alphabet, and Z, this is how I remember it. All right? So at, right between the two Z books is Haggai. So if you can find one of the Z books... You got it. You're there. See? Now someone right there is like, okay, sweet. Now I can find it. The other thing that you might want to know about this book is that Haggai, along with uh, Zechariah and Malachi, the last three books of your Old Testament, are known as post-exile prophetic books. In other words, these last three books were all written after Israel's time of exile in Babylon. After their time of captivity. The rest, all those other ones that are up there, were written either before as warnings or during as, as encouragement and, and, let, and reminding the people of God's presence and, and, and telling them what they need to do in order to be uh, restored. And so that's the organization of those books. Now, in order to really appreciate um, the words that God is going to speak through Haggai the prophet... I think it's really important that we just get a little bit of history. And I told Pastor Henry that I had originally thought maybe we'll go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's a great place to start, right? Um, But we don't have enough time for that. So I'm going to jump forward in Israel's history uh, to the time of King David and King Solomon. So a lot has already happened. A lot has already happened with God's people. But as many of you probably know, King Solomon who was King David's son, built a magnificent temple in Jerusalem for God. David wanted to build it, but God said, no, your hands are way too bloody to be building the temple where I will dwell. We'll let your son do that. And so Solomon built this temple for God. It was a construction project which took seven years to build and was completed in 960 B.C., Solomon's temple was the place where God chose to dwell on earth among his people. And not only was it just a magnificent structure, I mean, the gold would have been overwhelming. It was so much gold in Solomon's temple that silver was basically worthless, right? But more importantly than the magnificence of the structure was that it served as a constant reminder of God's glory and his presence with his people. And after Solomon died, a terrible thing happened. In 930 B.C., the nation of Israel splintered into two nations. Ten of Israel's tribes formed a a, a northern kingdom called Israel. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the uh, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And this time in Israel's history is known as the time of the divided Kingdom, Because the unified kingdom is now divided. You have Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. They both have their own kings. And the scriptures tell us that for the most part, neither Israel nor Judah followed God. For the most part, for the most part, uh, all of their leaders were, were horrible, horrible uh, men. In fact, we're told that in Israel, they didn't have one single king who followed after God. Not one. Not one. And Judah had very few. Judah had very few kings who actually followed after God. And so during this time, during this time, God raised up prophets. He raised up prophets that he would use to issue warnings to his people in both Israel and in Judah. 
And God urged them to repent, and he warned them of the consequences if they didn't. But they didn't listen. They didn't listen. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian army. The people were carried away, never to be established as a nation again. Meanwhile, thanks to a couple of uh, good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah survived a little bit longer until the Babylonian Empire came into power and they overthrew the Assyrians. And in the process, in a, in a series of three conquests, one in 605, another one in 597, and a third and final one in 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Judah and took them captive to Babylon. And in 586, in that final conquest, the city of Jerusalem was decimated. The city walls were torn down. The remaining Jews were taken into captivity. And God's temple, built by Solomon, was completely destroyed. God's temple had stood for nearly 400 years. And if you just get your head around that, we build structures that are falling apart in like 20 to 30, right? Seriously. Solomon's temple had stood for nearly 400 years. And it stood as a reminder of God's glory and his presence with his people You know, so much more than just a building being destroyed, it was a visual representation of what had happened. God's favor had stepped back from his people, and they were now captive and scattered abroad. But all of this was predicted through the words of the prophets. They knew it was coming, they knew it was coming. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God told them that their land would be destroyed and he told them that they would be exiled to Babylon for a period of 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, Jeremiah 25, 11, we read, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it happened. And it happened. But God also told them that they would return to their land. So at least there's a good ending to this thing, right? In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And so true to his word, he always is. He did. He did. By the way, that should really encourage us, right? I mean, the idea that God would tell his people before it happens, this is what's going to happen. You guys are so rebellious. All right, you don't want to follow me. You don't want to live for me. Great. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get carried away. You're going to get carried away into Babylon. And after 70 years, I'll bring you back. Now, when that happened, don't you think that people would be like, whoa! Can you imagine? He, he said it would happen. It really happened. Wow. We should probably live for him. Right? God is so good. But you know what's crazy? We read it. We're like, whoa! We should probably live for him. And just like our New Year's resolutions, we kind of just drift away. Right? God freed his people and he brought them back to their land. It's amazing. And in 538 B.C., something really cool happened. After the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians, all right? So the Assyrians, and you got the Babylonians, now you got the Persians are in power. The new Persian king, Cyrus the Great, issued a decree which freed the Jewish people to return to their home and rebuild God's temple. A pagan king issues a decree, says you guys should go home, back to Jerusalem, and build a temple for your God. That's what happened. Not only does he free them, 
But he also returns to them the articles that had been taken out of the temple when Babylon, the Babylonians conquered them, gives those back to him and says, hey, I think these belong to you. Wow, that's so cool. Thanks for holding on to them. And then he gives those back and he says, by the way, and also, we'll pay for the bill. We'll foot the bill to build this temple. You know, whatever you need, whatever you need, you go home, you build a temple, we'll pay for it. I mean, isn't that amazing? That's pretty amazing. Whenever I think about it, it, um, it just blows my mind. Hold your finger in, in, in Haggai there, because I don't want you to lose your place because it takes a while to find it. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. If you don't have it, it's fine. It's, I'll have it up on the screen for you as well. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses. And by the way, if you haven't already read the book of Ezra, I would encourage you at least read the first four chapters uh, over the next couple of weeks so that when we come back to chapter 2, you'll have that all in your, in your head. Um, but this is, this is an amazing little book as well. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people... May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That's quite a decree, don't you think? Pretty awesome. What's really cool about this is that God stirred the spirit of this foreign king to free God's people and send them back to their land to rebuild God's temple. God is the one who did it. What an amazing display of God's sovereign power. What an amazing reminder that no matter what earthly king is on the throne in Babylon, right? No matter what president is sitting in a White House in Washington, D.C., the sovereign God of the universe is always on the throne, and he directs the hearts of leaders around the globe. He always has, and he always will. Amen? No purpose of God's will ever be thwarted. God is in control. And so Cyrus... This pagan king issues a decree which allows the Jews to go home and rebuild the temple. It's amazing. And according to the book of Ezra, and again, read the first four chapters, nearly 50,000 Jews returned. And that sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? But really, there were many, 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 many more. I've, heard, I've read things as, as much as maybe even a million Jews chose not to return. They were comfortable in Babylon. Life is good. We've been here 70 years. I got a new business. Everything's great. Yeah. 50,000 return. And I say that because I want you to understand that these people came back with good intentions. These are not people who just like don't care about God. 50,000 people said, yeah, I'll go back. I'll help rebuild. I love God. I'll build, build the temple. And so they came back with great intentions to rebuild the temple. And in 536 B.C., the work began. Woo, it's great. We're rebuilding the temple. It's going to be great. However, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we start things with great intentions, but for a variety of reasons, we don't end up completing them. And that's the story here. As soon as the Israelites began to rebuild, they were immediately met with opposition from their enemies in the region. And the scriptures tell us that the Jews became discouraged and they were afraid to rebuild. So they stopped. They stopped building. And for the next 14 to 16 years, the temple remained in ruins. 
They didn't do the work that God had sent them to do. And while God's temple remained in ruins, they're like, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I guess we'll start building my own house. And so they started building their own lives and rebuilding their own livelihood in Jerusalem until finally God said, enough, enough. And he sends a series of messages to his people through the prophet Haggai. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1, verse 1 of Haggai. Are you ready? Are you, did you find it? You're back there? Good. All right, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Such a good book. You're going to love it. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. See why it's so good? I mean, that is awesome. Don't you love that? Such a good book. It gets better. No, it gets better. You're going to like it. So the year, the year is now 520 B.C. It's been 14 to 16 years now since the Jews stopped working on the rebuilding of God's temple. Cyrus is no longer the king of Persia, and the newest ruler, Darius, is in his second year as the king. God sends a message through the prophet Haggai to two men, Zerubbabel, and we're going to learn more about him uh, next time. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. He's a, he's a civil authority of the people. The second man is Joshua, who is the high priest. Both of these men were among those who had returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple. But these are the leaders. These are the leaders of the people. So God brings a message through Haggai to the leaders in order to get this message out to the people. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people. By the way, that's scary. Just that right there. Because how does God usually refer to the Israelites? My people. My people. He looks and he says, These people. That would have got uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua's attention. And we've already talked about the fact that the people had become discouraged. They were afraid because of the opposition they faced. You see, when they were met with resistance, instead of pressing forward and trusting God to help them, they rationalized their fears by concluding, get this, it's just not the right time. You know... These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God told us to rebuild, but he didn't say when. He didn't say when. We'll get to it eventually, right? The people, the people probably figured it must not be God's will for us to build his temple because if it was his will, we wouldn't be facing all this resistance from our enemies. Right? Because we know that when we pursue God's will, we never face persecution. <laughs> right? When has that ever been the case? Ever. Paul told Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? It comes with the territory. But what these people were doing is the same thing that we often do. They were spiritualizing their disobedience spiritualizing their disobedience. What does this look like in our lives? We say things like, I, I want to. I do. I want to share my faith with my friend. I, I want to share my faith with my neighbor. Right? It's just, I want to make sure it's the right time. I want to make sure it's the right time. And so days become weeks, which become months, which become years. And guess what? It's just never really quite the right time time, is it? But God has given us a mission in Matthew 28 to make disciples. So tell me, when is the right time to do that? Ahora. <laughs> I just saw my friend Russ over here, my Spanish buddy. Now! Ahora. It's now. Now's the time to make disciples. 
because he's commanded us to. Or how about this one? I, I do. I, re- I want to get involved with building his kingdom. I, I want to get involved with a small group. I want to teach Sunday school. I, I-, I want to do these things. But, I, you know, I just, I think that really right now what God is calling me to do is really just focus, focus on my own spiritual growth. Oh, we've never used that excuse. I, I just, I need to work on my own spiritual growth. And what we often fail to recognize is that the way we grow spiritually is by walking in obedience. Right? Putting what we've learned into practice. Or how about this one? I want to serve others in the community. I I want to go on a missions trip, but I I just really need to focus on my family right now. Focus on my family. Man, that one is the, that's the go-to one. That is the go-to one, right? And honestly, it's a good one to go to if you're trying to spiritualize your disobedience because it's something you're called to do. That's why it's such a great excuse. It sounds good, but sadly, what does that really often look like? What does it really look like? It looks like, oftentimes, at least it has been in my life, looks like more time on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Right? It's more time with every individual doing their own individual thing, right? We're just going to stay home and spend time as a family, but nobody's even in the same room, right? Very little time is actually devoted to personal spiritual growth. Very little time is actually being invested into spending quality time with your family, helping them to grow in their knowledge and love for the Lord and their knowledge and love for each other. That's what it usually looks like. And don't get me wrong. Please don't walk out of here and say, yeah, Pastor Chris doesn't think it's important to walk, you know, work on your spiritual growth and invest in your family. <laughs> you couldn't, I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. Of course I want you to do that. Pursuing spiritual growth and strengthening your marriage, investing in your family, these are awesome things. But do not use them as an excuse for avoiding the other things that God is calling you to. Amen? There was not a lot of amens on that one. <laughs> Pastor Chris is totally meddling right now. Hey, it only hurts because it's true. And by the way, it's me too. I mean, honestly, just ask my wife. Really, honestly, does Chris come home and lead a Bible study every night? You know? Everybody sit down, open your Bibles, get out your highlighters. Like, no, right? I'm just like the rest of you. I'm selfish. Pursue all kinds of time sitting around, wasting time doing nothing, right? Let's not use, you know, godly pursuits as an excuse for disobeying him. The Israelites were discouraged. They were afraid because of the opposition. So they stopped pursuing what God had called them to. You've got to ask yourself, is there something that God is calling me to right now that I'm, I'm being disobedient about? And as a church, it's not just individuals. As a church, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Are we on mission? Or are we chasing all kinds of things that don't really matter? We need to stay on mission. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. (laughs) This is awesome. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? (laughs) I know it probably wasn't said that way, but for me, I hear sarcasm really dripping off this statement, right? (laughs) Ouch. God says, oh, you guys are saying it's not time to build my house, but you're building your own homes, right? With your fancy paneling, right? (laughs) Got your fancy paneling. God's like, what is up with that? What's up with that? The Israelites figure, well, if we're not supposed to build the church, I guess we couldn't... Guess I could put in a pool. You know? <laughs> Church is all set. And for 14 to 16 years, for 14, that's a long time, they walked by this temple that once stood as a visible manifestation of the presence of God for them and for all their enemies. They walked by it as it laid in ruins and continued to invest in what was important to them. Do not misunderstand what's going on here. Is God opposed to his people having nice things? Is that what he's saying? Does God just really dislike paneling? 
probably. Um, <laughs> it really depends on what type of paneling it is, right? I mean, let's be honest. If it's shiplap, apparently that's really cool now, right? So, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines thing. So, no, the problem here, the problem is a problem of misplaced priorities, right? God's people were off mission because God's people had stopped putting God first. In God's message through Haggai that we're going to look at today, this, this first message that we're going to look at, we see that in order to get on track with God's mission, God's plans must be our highest priority. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers, Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's awesome. See, it's a matter of priorities. The question that you and I need to be asking is, where do God's plans rank in my life? Do I have a God-first mentality or a me-first mentality? Don't answer that out loud. Does God get my best or does he get what's left, right? Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Isn't that an awesome description of what I think most Americans feel like? Earn wages just to put them in a bag with holes. God invites the people to consider their ways. Now, the literal translation of this phrase is to set your hearts on your ways or set your hearts on your road. God says, go ahead. Take some time to evaluate the road that you're going down. How's that working for you? How's it working? You sow much, you have little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you're never full. You put on clothes, you're never warm. You earn a paycheck and it's spent before it hits your bank account. Their lives were a living illustration of the whole one step forward, two steps back. One step forward, two steps back. God says, hey, take some time to consider your ways. You're living for yourselves, and it's not going well. See, what they needed to do, and what we need to do, is we need to have the attitude that Jesus had. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, Jesus says, I have come down from, the heaven, from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know what's really amazing about that? When we make God's priorities our priorities we begin to experience a a type of joy, a type of peace, and a type of contentment that is not dictated by our circumstances. And the truth of the matter is, and we need to understand this, we will never find uh, true satisfaction in any of life's pursuits until we find our satisfaction in God. The Israelites would never be truly satisfied with all that they built. It didn't matter how nice a home they built for themselves. They would never be satisfied truly as they walked by God's temple and looked at it in ruins. So in verse 7 he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. It's like I think this, this phrase happens like four times in this book. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. In other words, get to work. Get back to work. Do what I've called you to do. Rebuild my house. He says, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house. By the way, it's just an interesting thought, but the fact that they had to go get the wood, it was supplied by King King Cyrus. Where's the wood that was supplied? Maybe it was on their house. What God supplied for his house, they had taken for themselves. (laughs) Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house. And then he tells them why. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, this is like, this is like, wow. This is faith 101. We exist for the glory of God. We exist for God's glory. In Isaiah chapter 43, uh, 43 verse 7, we're told that everyone who is called by his name, he created for his glory. Everyone who's called by my name is, was created for my glory. Instead of living to please ourselves, we should be living to bring pleasure and glory to God. God tells the Israelites that their, 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 dis, uh, that their obedience to, to rebuild his temple will bring him pleasure and glory. Their obedience would bring him pleasure and glory. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, when Samuel rebuked King Saul for his disobedience, he said, and Samuel said, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. Now, we can bring our offerings and we can sing our songs, but what God really sees as worship is our obedience to him. And it's not that we throw those other things out, but they're meaningless if they're not also accompanied by obedience. Our obedience matters greatly to God. It's the evidence of our love for him. John 14, 23 to 24, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Our obedience is a sincere form of worship. By obeying, we acknowledge his rightful rule over our life. We declare his worth. We're telling the world that, the, that we serve a God who is worthy of our total devotion. By rebuilding God's temple in Jerusalem, Israel would be declaring to all the people that the God of Israel is worthy of all praise. It would serve as a reminder that God is present with his people. And God says that this brings him pleasure and glory. You know, if you just picture this for a moment, remember that Jerusalem is seated at the top of this high plateau, right? It's on this plateau. And, and at that time, the, the temple was a magnificent structure that you, you're coming up to Jerusalem, all you can see is the temple. So whether you're an enemy or whether you are God's chosen people, you're coming up and it's like, wow, God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Or God is with them. God is with them. Right? But it wasn't there anymore. By rebuilding the temple, they would be declaring to the entire world that God is worthy of his, our, uh, our praise and he is with us. He is here. Verse 9. God says, you looked for much. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, I am against you right now. I don't, I don't know how they didn't know it. I don't know why they had to, 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 to have a prophet come to them to tell them, hey, you might not have noticed this, but um, things aren't going very well for you right now. They weren't making the connection that their disobedience was putting God against them. <laughs> it was because of their misplaced priorities, their selfish pursuits, and their neglect of God. He tells them that he's the one Who's doing all this? He's the one that's withheld the reins. He's the one that's limited their crops. He tells them, even what you bring home, I blow it away. I blow it away. You've got nothing to show for it. They were not experiencing the blessing and favor of God in their lives. And it wasn't because they were necessarily pursuing bad things. It doesn't say like, well, you're out there doing all these awful things and therefore I'm against you. They just weren't doing the most important things. 
they had made a business about doing good things to the neglect of the most important thing, which is God. They had misplaced their priorities, and God's hand was against them. We cannot ignore the things that God is calling us to and expect to walk in his blessing and favor. And God confronts these people with the error of their ways. And what I absolutely love about this passage is how they responded. By the way, most of the prophets, when they would speak to the people, they didn't get this type of response. It was a really discouraging job to be a prophet. You know, if you read, read Jeremiah, it's like, man, this really stinks. Here am I, send them. I don't want to be a prophet, you know? But Haggai gets what most prophets don't. He gets a really favorable response. Maybe it's because he was short. You know, it was a short book. You know, if he had come with a big, long one, I don't know, maybe. I don't know. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. I think that's really important, by the way, that he says the remnant. Like I said at the beginning, these 50,000 came back. They had good intentions. These are God's people. They love God. They're just off track. They're off mission. My remnant here, all of them, with Joshua, with, uh, with Zerubbabel, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed. And the words of Haggai the prophet, they obeyed the words that were delivered from God through Haggai as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. The people responded by obeying the Lord and by fearing the Lord. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, God alone is the rightful ruler and authority of our lives. And the only right response to his discipline is obedience. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people received the Lord's rebuke and they responded with obedience. And I wish I could say that this is how I typically respond. Right? But far too often I... I, I make excuses, you know? I try to justify my behavior, and I resist the correction of God. Theirs was the right response. The only right response to God's correction is to repent and to obey. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's, uh, the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that awesome? God assures them of his presence. I am with you. God was calling his people to rebuild his temple. They stopped because they were afraid. They stopped because of the opposition that had arisen from their enemies. But as they responded in obedience in the fear of the Lord, God reassures them with the promise of his presence. And I think it's it's no coincidence that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus made that same promise to his followers as he commissioned them to not build, not build a temple out of wood and steel. And, and, well, they didn't do steel then. Wood and stone. God was, uh, Jesus was commissioning his church, us, to build the, the, the temple, the body of Christ. I think it's no accident that the same, in the same way that God reassured uh, his people in Haggai, who were going to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, are the same words that he used to reassure his followers because he was sending them out on a very difficult mission. It's not easy to live out the Great Commission. It's not easy, necessarily, to go out and make disciples. We're going to face opposition. But Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. I'm with you to the end of the age. God's promised presence provides us with the courage to face any opposition. God called the Israelites to build his temple, and he's called you and I to help build his church. Brothers and sisters, my desire for you, my desire for me, my desire for this church here in Fayette, Maine, 
actually my desire for the whole church, this whole generation of Christ followers around the globe, is that we would stay on mission, that we would be passionate about pursuing God's plans and God's purpose for our lives. My prayer is that we would be consumed with doing the things that bring him glory in every area of our lives and that we would live with the confidence of Christ's presence and the eager expectation of all that he has in store for us. Verse 14 says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the very first verse of this chapter, we read that God sent a message to his people through Haggai the prophet, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. After 14 to 16 years of God's house being neglected, these people responded in obedience, and the construction of God's temple began on the 24th day of that same month. The time is now, right? 24 days later, they were back to building God's temple. They didn't didn't go and ask Darius, hey, is it okay if we rebuild the temple? No, God told us to do this. We're doing it. In a couple weeks, we're going to pick up in chapter 2. And we're going to see that God has more messages to deliver to his people as they continue the process of rebuilding his house. He's going to give them instructions that will help them now that they're back on track. He's got some instructions that will help them to stay on track as they live in obedience to him. So, that's two weeks from now. Until then... You and I, let's make sure that God's plans are our highest priorities. And let's live our lives in such a way that we bring pleasure and glory to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Wow, thank you so much for, for this word that you spoke through your prophet Haggai. Thank you for the way that you love your people enough that when we get off track... you. You love us enough to discipline us. <laughs> you love us enough to, to, to correct us and help us to get on track. And God, I just pray that, that, that we, as your people who are not living in, in, in 520 B.C., but here in 2020 A.D., I pray that we would be busy about your mission. I pray that we would live with the boldness and courage that that we have because of your presence with us to help build your church. I pray that we would stay on mission and that we would bring you pleasure and we would bring you glory in all of our pursuits. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.